This is our first uh, Sunday back from our August uh, summer schedule. As you know, uh, our August services were on pause for the entire month, uh, which allowed us to spend some deliberate time outside of church together. We went to the beach. We uh, watched a few movies on Pier 1 on the Hudson. We met for drinks at Cantina and Cafe Amrita, and we even shared a morning brunch at Le Monde. One guest who attended that brunch was a friend of uh, Casey Brooks, who goes here to Trinity Heights. And I guess due to a small miscommunication, Casey's friend thought she was being invited to another church service after having already attended Mass earlier that morning. And as I was chatting to her over brunch, she mentioned how relieved she was to find out that we were actually all sharing a meal together and not actually having church, because as another person put it that morning, brunch is just more fun. And it's a valid point, because brunch is more fun than church, which is probably why, at least in New York, it feels like there are more brunch-goers than there are church-goers. I couldn't find any exact statistics on that, despite doing some in-depth research. But what I did find was an article published in 2018, actually, uh, by the Washington Post titled, How Brunch Became an American Religion. And in the article, Sarah Lynn Radeke, the founder of BrunchCon, says, Brunch has waxed as our interest in religion has waned. Monica Zarita, aged 32, of Vienna, was interviewed in that same article and states, I don't have time to get up at 7 or 8 a.m. to go to church, but I do have time to go to brunch. And yet here we are in the bell tower of Riverside Church, worshiping together. Granted, we do start a little later. 11 a.m. or sometimes 11.15 if the, if the coffee conversation's lively or uh, sometimes much to Carrie Landero's completely justifiable chagrin. We start at 11.20 or if it's our first Sunday back, I think we started a little later than that. <laughs> but I guess my point is we could be brunching. We could be anywhere else for that matter, anywhere else instead of here. So if I'm really going to be honest about my thoughts on church, I think the first thought would be, why is it that Sunday after Sunday we wake up, get ourselves and our children ready, leave the comfort of our homes, 
and meet here in room 10T to sing songs, read from an ancient book, listen to old stories and about ancient groups of people, and enact certain sacraments and practices that many in our city deem to be archaic, outmoded, and outdated. And if that wasn't already enough, why do we here at Trinity Heights Church embrace the fact specifically that we gather on Sunday mornings as a community of Christians and skeptics? And how does that even work? Don't communities of faith require and rely on agreement? Can people of faith and doubt actually live alongside each other in harmony? Can we worship together, share meals together, and participate in the ups of down and downs in each other's lives in any real and meaningful way? Well, speaking of uh, sharing meals together and participating in each other's lives, this past Friday evening I was on Columbia's campus sharing a meal and playing cornhole uh, with a group of international students, many from India and Singapore, uh, at an event organized by my friend Andrew Terrell, actually, who works for RUF, which is Reformed University Fellowship. These students are from a multitude of faith backgrounds and have some, and, and some have actually even rejected the faith they were brought up with and uh, are, are just genuinely searching for a place where they might be accepted uh, and in a community where, as one student said, he could go deep. So during this last Friday's event, I started talking with a 21-year-old chemical engineering student named Samesh from Mumbai, uh, who's only been in the States for three weeks, never been outside of India. This is his first time outside of, the, of his home country. And within the span of less than a month, he has found himself in the middle of New York City at an event hosted by a church who just so happens to be partnering with another Christian organization. He's eating sandwiches that we as a church uh, purchased and provided. And in between bites, he starts asking me questions about Christianity and faith. He finds out that this is actually a Christian gathering. And I asked him about his own faith, to which he quickly responded that he considers himself to be irreligious. But he did mention that he's intrigued by Christianity. I guess up until coming to the States, he had never actually met a real Christian. So I spoke with him a little bit about why we were hosting the event, and I mentioned that uh, Jesus was a person who promoted generosity, hospitality, and selflessness, and told us to love our neighbors and welcome foreigners. And I told him about Trinity Heights and how we're a community of Christians and skeptics where all are welcome to explore the story of Jesus regardless of their faith. And Samesh replied that, oh, Trinity Heights seemed like it might be the perfect place for him. And then he, he said something very interesting right after that. He said that over the past three weeks that he's felt his mind expand and open up as he's beginning to realize that there's a world of faith and art and storytelling outside of the rigid structure that he was brought up with in India. He said that in India, for him, his only option was science. He was good at science, but he called himself a nerd. He said, uh, I wasn't strong like the other kids who had the option of going to the army. And on top of that, uh, religion for him, or faith in general, was nothing more than some empty actions and rituals off to the side. He said his whole world was purely academic, purely structured with everything labeled and in its own box. But all of a sudden, after coming to Columbia, he started to realize that there's this world of beauty that he's never tapped into before, a larger, overarching, connecting story that makes life worth living. And now remember, this is all 
he's talking and, and responding to me talking about the generosity of Jesus. So somehow Samesh is already beginning to understand that Christianity and the person of Christ has something to do with an overarching story and life being worth living. And somehow this is all related to people being allowed to live more fully human and interconnected lives. I honestly, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing because it was like I was coming upon something that I've always known, but coming upon it with completely fresh eyes through Samesh's perspective. Now, contrast that conversation with one that I heard a while back from Stephen Chung, who uh, actually sends his love, by the way, um, from the UK. He and Julia uh, will be back in New York um, and back to Trinity Heights just past the middle of this month, uh, right after Stephen presents at the annual Nietzsche conference in Dundee, Scotland. Anyhow, uh, Stephen told me about this particular conversation that occurred while um, a while back with, with one person, and that particular person felt that believers and unbelievers just couldn't be in any kind of real community. That the gap between belief and unbelief was just too great. And any attempt to reconcile the two to each other within the context of, church, of a church community just seemed like an insurmountable task. And I think this person raises a valid concern, at least from the viewpoint of our specific age and our specific culture, which bases unity on agreement and seems dead set on viewing even the slightest deviations in opinion as points where we as kind of rugged individuals have every right to part ways. And from this perspective, I understand why a community of Christians and skeptics might seem impossible. But when I talk to someone like Samesh, who has complete, a completely different perspective and comes from a, def, a completely different cultural background, it, it only further reinforced in my mind that if we're not with and for each other, right from the start, then what's the point? Samesh is not a believer, and yet in our brief exchange over a sandwich and cornhole, something happened, we were in conversation, we were with and for each other, and somehow Jesus was also there. And I think we're actually very lucky because Jesus did not, in fact, preach a gospel of agreement or rugged individualism. In fact, when we go back and look at Jesus' own community and read the story written in the New Testament about his disciples and his close friends and his family and the crowds that followed him, we begin to realize that Jesus himself only ever had a community of Christians and skeptics. His followers were from all walks of life, different belief backgrounds, different religions, and different ethnicities. They were filled with doubts, questions, belief, and unbelief. In fact, when we look at it that way, they were in fact the very first community of Christians. But if this is the case, then it seems that somewhere along the way, the modern Christian church, in many ways, may have lost touch with its more collaborative and multifaceted origins. And I think we may have all encountered the effects of this disconnection in some form or another. Maybe in past faith communities, you felt you were walking around on eggshells, constantly worrying about creating a scandal, or just worrying about doing or saying the wrong thing. You show a hint of doubt, and you're out. You ask the wrong question, and you're out. You declare unbelief, and you're definitely out. Or at the very least, you begin to have the inkling feeling that you're being held at arm's length. You become the recipient of worried looks with maybe some brave 
well-intentioned people going out of their way to let you know that they're praying for you and your eventual return to the fold. I know I experienced that for myself when I was in a period of doubt, but I also remember back in my early 20s attending a church where a husband and father of two decided almost, it was very suddenly, he decided that he was uh, actually no longer a Christian and uh, was, an, was in fact an atheist. And the news spread quickly that Jeff had, um, to use a Christianese term, uh, backslid. And he had walked away from the faith. He had denounced Christ. And perhaps this was because he had uh, maybe read the wrong book or, or maybe he had even uh, read Nietzsche. <laughs> but as far as I know, uh, Jeff and his family were never seen again. And uh, so the rumors and the scandal spread. But when we look at the Bible and begin to take the stories of Jesus seriously, we find that Jesus wasn't easily scandalized. He just wasn't that kind of person. Granted, he was scandalized by a few things, specifically the legalistic posture of the Pharisees. And for sure there are other scandalous things, murder, rape, adultery, greed. But what we find is that in the stories of Jesus, when it comes to the area of doubt, skepticism, and unbelief, this isn't where the scandal appears. It's just not. Instead, when it comes to skepticism, what does appear is Christ himself. In story after story, we see him deliberately inserting himself into the lives of people, meeting them in their doubt and intervening on their behalf. And that brings us to the two stories that Jesse read for us this morning in the first story, we see Simon Peter, who along with a few of the other disciples, decides to go fishing. But of course, the prequel to this is the arrest and trial of Jesus, during which Simon Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter, fearing for his own life, denounces his teacher and then slinks away, leaving Jesus to be brutally tortured and executed. It's a story of fear and self-preservation laced with doubt and unbelief. Surely this is the stuff of scandal. But no, not quite, because Jesus isn't scandalized by doubt and belief. So after being betrayed, killed, and in a wild turn of events, actually resurrected from the dead, what does Jesus decide to do? And this is where I want to take a moment and realize that things get very strange. Because whether we buy into this story wholeheartedly or even just come up against it from the outside, we have to come to grips with the fact that in this story, we're being told that the resurrected Jesus, God incarnate, the conqueror of sin and death, who's just set in motion the reconciliation of heaven and earth, has now decided to make a few very deliberate decisions. And what does this Messiah decide to do? He decides to show up on a beach, make a fire by hand, cook some fish, and then share a meal with friends with the single intention of mending a broken relationship and restoring the faith of one person. Granted, Jesus also performs a miracle, lots of fish on one side of the boat, but at this point, miracles have become Jesus' calling cards, so the disciples then realize who he is. Simon Peter jumps out of the boat, impatient to get to Jesus, then back to the boat for fish, then frantically back to Jesus, water splashing everywhere. He's tripping over himself. But this is not the scene of a scandal. This is more a scene from a slapstick comedy, a silent black-and-white Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. And like these Hollywood greats, these Buster Keatons or these Charlie Chaplins, Simon Peter becomes a symbol for all of humanity and all its clumsiness. 
falling over itself to come to grips with the person of Jesus, and Jesus in return presents himself intervening on behalf of humanity, and without a hint of coercion or manipulation simply asks, do you love me? In the second story from Jesse's reading, we watch as Thomas, popularly known as Doubting Thomas, hears the news from a few other disciples that they have seen the Lord, referring to the resurrected Christ. But of course, as we know, Thomas needs proof because people don't just raise from the dead. So Thomas utters the famous words, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. And in this story, again, we see that instead of a scandal, Jesus inserts himself into the disciples' midst by performing another one of his kind of calling card miracles. He apparently teleports himself into the locked room where Thomas and the disciples are hiding and declares, peace be with you, and then proceeds to present his physical resurrected body to Thomas, offering the very proof that Thomas had just a week before asked to see. So not only do we see Jesus use his own physical body to shatter Thomas's doubt, but more importantly, we see him beam himself directly into the space of Thomas's unbelief and meet him right there in it with a supernatural deliberateness and a laser focus. This is the opposite of a quiet scandal or a passive aggressive, I'll be praying for you. This is the opposite of believers and unbelievers slowly drifting apart. Because this is God with us and for us. And this is Jesus modeling a level of deliberate focus, one that we need to model ourselves and be with and for each other. This is Christ reminding us that the founding of his church has been from the very beginning based on the collaboration of Christians and skeptics, believers and unbelievers alike. And so we take this very seriously, this idea of a community of Christians and skeptics, understanding that this is in fact the basis of why we worship together. Understanding that the unity of Christ exists before we agree on anything, and that the peace that he declares is a peace that we share between ourselves immediately and instantaneously just because we decide to be with each other and share in each other's love. Whether that's over brunch or cornhole or a sandwich at Columbia or worshiping together each morning um, here side by side. Because if we're ever going to fully understand the good news of Jesus, the first move has to be towards each other. But why is that the first move? Because that's actually what this gospel thing, this whole good news thing is all about. God with us. Because what better news could there be than the fact that God is with us and for us and he wants us to be with and for each other. And that's prior to any agreements. Therefore, this morning in the name of Jesus, I'm with you and I'm for you. Amen.
fire. 